Hello, and welcome to Fertility in Focus, a podcast dedicated to exploring the complex and emotional journey of fertility. I'm your host, Carolyn Dubay, and I am thrilled to share this space with you. Whether you're actively trying to conceive, considering your options, or simply interested in learning about fertility, we're here to offer insight, inspiration, and hope. Each week, we'll feature interviews with leading fertility experts and real stories from people who have experienced the highs and lows of building a family of their dreams. So let's dive in and bring fertility into focus. Welcome back to another episode of Fertility in Focus. I am Carolyn Dubay, your host for today, Executive Director at Fertility Matters Canada. And it is my honor today to be with Dr. Gordon McTavish from Heartland Fertility, all the way on the other side of the country, almost on the other side of the country from where I am in New Brunswick in Manitoba. So Dr. McTavish, welcome. We are going to discuss infertility and IUI or interuterine insemination, which I think is an area of, you know, quite often in the, in what we see online and what we're seeing on social media, we hear IVF, IVF, IVF. And I would love to dig in with you about IUI and why that may be a great option for people who are trying to build their families. So welcome. Well, thanks very much for uh, inviting me to this uh, podcast. Uh, it's quite exciting for me to have an opportunity to talk to you and, and also sort of just generally for other people to hear, uh, you know, common myths and common things that they're uh, they're asking about with infertility. Love and that. Yes, I have been here for a little while. That white hair does come sort of with, uh, with time. And I've been running the Heartland Fertility Clinic here in Winnipeg uh, for 27 years. So uh, it's been really, uh, it's been a really great part of the practice to sort of enjoy helping couples that have been struggling to get pregnant on their own, different ways and options to help them get pregnant, right, and have families. And I think that's what uh, what it's all about for all of us that sort of practice in infertility medicine. So yeah, mm-hmm. just in our pre-record, um, you and I were touching base on sort of the new statistics or the new report from the World Health Organization that has uh, stated that one in six people worldwide, one in six adults sort of in that reproductive age will experience infertility or challenge or need access to fertility care uh, in their lifetime in order to potentially take home a a baby. In your perspective, what does infertility and, and, and is that reflective of what's actually happening in Canada? Be interested to just talk about that for a bit. Yeah, no, I I think it is. I think it's a lot of reflection both uh, across a variety of countries and for a variety of reasons. But I think we often sort of compare statistically to the United States when they used to identify it as one in six couples that were trying to get pregnant. And I think the World Health Organization's re-twigging of the definition is probably more appropriate because... Um, you know, people are getting uh, wanting to start families in a variety of ways, whether they're single women, whether it's same sex female couples, uh, male couples that are looking for assisted reproductive treatment options. And we're finding that because, you know, a long time ago, everybody used to think that it was more of a female cause to the fertility issue. And obviously, you know, we know more that it's almost a 50-50 responsibility. There's a, a large degree of male factor component to the infertility. And so that really defining it as one in six people, I think, is probably more appropriate because uh, most people don't start thinking about their fertility potential till they're well past their teens and into the university years, unless they're getting teenage pregnancies or they're getting pregnancies before they're planning it. 
but a lot of people are often waiting till they're into their 20s. And now with professional and schools and things, they're often delaying their childbearing and they're getting into a group of people that are having a lower fertility potential sometimes. So we are seeing this very commonly. And I don't think any fertility clinics across the country don't have a waiting list to see people to take care of, right? Absolutely. I would agree with you. I was happy to have this new report. It gives us a bit more, um, it gives us something else to sort of uh, use when we're referencing um, the incidence of and and how many people are actually affected and need access to care. Um, I know because of where your clinic is located, you know, you have a very large province with one fertility clinic. And where I am in Atlantic Canada, we have, you know, four provinces with to share two clinics. And so access to service is, uh, is awkward, is awkward, right? Absolutely. Manitoba is such a big province, but it's, it's not as highly populated. So there's a lot of uh, regional disparity where there's, you know, a lot of people in the North and even getting down for uh, a consultation or even coming down for treatments, you know, there's a barrier to that in a lot of areas, right? Yeah, absolutely. So we're not going to walk down that path too much today, but I just did want to recognize um, for your patients, especially who are listening to you today, um, that we recognize that that is an issue for people um, in different areas of the country. So let's talk about IUI. So for our listeners, many people will know what that is. There are many people who won't know what if that is, intrauterine insemination. I'd love to have you explain, you know, what that is and and who's a candidate to use that technology? When a couple often comes or an individual comes to the clinic because they're trying to get pregnant, if they've been trying on their own for you know a good block of time, artificial insemination or intrauterine insemination is commonly done if there's a borderline male factor where the sperm's not strong enough on its own to get a lady pregnant. You might need to concentrate that sperm and transport it with a catheter up into the uterus so it has almost like a kickstart out to the tubes to help you know get out to the tubes when an egg is being picked up at the right time. So it actually improves both the timing of the insemination. So we know now that the lady's ovulating at the time that we're putting sperm into the uterine cavity so that it can transport out to the tubes to hopefully help that lady get pregnant. It's uh, It's fairly simple. It's not as expensive. Uh, It's usually doing some ultrasounds to monitor a lady's cycle to get an idea of when she's about to ovulate. And then it's really getting a sample of the husband's sperm or the partner's sperm, or if she's a single woman using donor sperm, where we can uh, thaw or concentrate that sperm and use a catheter to transfer it right up inside the uterus. It's, I always refer to it like a good blind date. It sort of puts the parties together at the right time. But, you know, once it's in place, you don't know if you're going to really like that person when you leave the lunch, right? And it's the same thing with artificial insemination. It puts sperm up into the uterine cavity to get out to the fallopian tubes to fertilize the egg. But not all the time does that sperm and egg bump into each other and fertilize. So it's, it's a good technique, but it's chances of helping a couple get pregnant, depending on their age and their causes of infertility, could range anywhere from... 6% to 15 or 16% per, per cycle, right? So it, it doesn't leave you a high rate of fertilization, but usually it's got a cumulative rate. So after three or four cycles of IUI, you've often improved your chance of getting pregnant by that. Not that the third or fourth cycle is a better cycle that it gets you pregnant, but cumulatively, 
each chance, each percent chance of getting pregnant per cycle. You know, by the time you've done three or four cycles, uh, uh, you know, a higher percentage of people have conceived by that point. And I think that's sort of the misconception, right? I also think it's important to note that quite often it takes several rounds of IUI in order to to conceive or achieve a pregnancy. You know, if you're going into an IUI cycle that you could end up doing a couple, but that if you're the right candidate, this could be a great option for you and your family planning. For sure. And, and a lot of people, I'm going to take it from a different perspective to give people something to think about, because I know that in some provinces, IUI is covered by uh, their health program, Ontario Health. OHIP covers IUI, I think, in Ontario, doesn't cover it in Manitoba. I don't know about the other provinces. but So there's a cost per cycle of doing IUI. The one thing that I think couples don't think about is that if they are having infertility and they're coming in at 35 and we do IUI and just say they get pregnant, the next time they want to come back and have another baby, they're going to be 37 or 38. By the time they've gone through their nine months, they've breastfed, they're saying, okay, I think we want to try. It's two years now. We want to try again. They're 37 or 38. And now her fertility potential has dropped. So what I like to talk to couples about, whether it's a single female, a same-sex female couple, a heterosexual couple that's just trying to get pregnant as a couple, I like to talk to them about doing anywhere from one to three cycles of IUI to give them that chance of trying to get pregnant you know, with less intervention, okay? But that if they haven't conceived, they really should think about IVF as a treatment option because in Manitoba, we actually have a fertility tax credit that's a 40% refundable tax credit. So what you pay uh, on your IVF cycle, up to $20,000 in infertility treatments per year, you can get 40% of it cash refunded back, plus provincial and federal tax credits that reduce medical expenses. So it's a pay forward, but you get refunded back a fair amount of uh, that cost. The nice thing about doing that is that if IUI hasn't been able to help that couple get pregnant, and you do an IVF cycle, now you're actually creating embryos that if I'm 35, now those embryos are 35-year-old embryos so that even if I want to be 37 or 40 when I want to have my expand my family, I've got embryos that have been created when I'm younger. And I think that's what IUI is a really good introductory treatment, but it shouldn't be one that people are coming for 10 or 15 IUIs and then they just keep dragging out because after three or four cycles of IUI and after one or two years of trying on your own the old-fashioned way, I mean, you have infertility for other causes, and sometimes you need a higher intervention to help you overcome those obstacles, right? So that, that's a lot of things that I like people to be thinking about when they talk. They, absolutely, IUI is a good introductory treatment, but it's limited in its value, and its pregnancy rate is going to be lower per cycle than an, IV, an active IVF cycle if you create good embryos, right? Great. No, that's, those are such good considerations. In fact, now that you're saying that, and I mean, I have been working in this field for many years now. Um, it's something that I haven't really, when you say, you know, if you're going to, you achieve a pregnancy and you wait a few years, you're going to come back to do another IUI and you're 37. Right. When I'm talking to people about IUI, it's not actually something that's not language that I've used as an example. And I now will that is firmly planted in the back of my mind because it's such an important consideration for your family expansion that as the time goes by, um, 
as so does your, 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 your the decrease. Client. Exactly. So such important considerations. And I yeah. know that physicians have those conversations with patients. It's just something uh, to consider. And when you're sitting in a fertility clinic, sometimes you're not collecting all of the information. You're trying to process what you're hearing. So oh, sure. yeah. and, and there's so much information for a couple. I mean, and we're seeing a lot of people where English isn't their first language. Mm-hmm, so sometimes just understanding the concept of fertility, talking to a couple who speaks English very well, but it's not their mother tongue, can sometimes be confusing. And I think the other perfect example with IUI I just wanted to bring up is we see a lot of same-sex couples and a lot of single women that are wanting to have a family. And when you actually are going with the Can-Am sperm banks you know, to purchase sperm for artificial insemination, it's expensive. It's over $1,000 for a small vial of, of sperm. And what ends up happening is now that couple or that individual might find a donor that suits their, their needs. And then they'll go to the bank and say, I'd like to, to purchase that donor's sperm. And they're all gone because somebody has already gone and purchased all that sperm for their multiple IUIs. So what I've been counseling uh the couples and or the individuals that I'm taking care of that are looking at donor insemination for IUI is I'm suggesting that they purchase three vials of sperm and try at least two attempts at IUI. And then on their third attempt to not use that sperm for an IUI, but to consider doing IVF. Because now if they haven't gotten pregnant, say they come in at 33 and they want to start their family if they haven't gotten pregnant in a couple of months with two IUI cycles, then doing IVF on, again, 33-year-old eggs and having a better quality embryo will give her multiple opportunities. If she's got a good ovarian reserve to get a future family and or get pregnant with that, that thing. So I've sort of changed the way I'm counseling people on doing IUI. I, I really want to make sure it's offered in good settings. When a lady's got good tubes, she's got a good ovarian reserve, she's got a partner who has good sperm, or she's doing a donor insemination with a good you know, fertility potential from the donor. But they should really consider anywhere from one to three cycles maximum, and then really focus on, on what the main fertility problem could be. Because IVF sort of uncovers, you know, does even the DNA of the sperm and egg come together and make a healthy embryo, right? Those are things that we don't necessarily know until you're actually seeing that embryo growing under the microscope. Right. So, yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of things that, you know, you talk and you don't want to steer somebody into an expensive intervention because IVF is expensive. But if you realize that one, there's a, a tax credit that it's a pay for and you get helped out. When you take a look at, you know, the cost of family planning, right? Because even if you have a baby, I mean, babies are ten to fifteen thousand dollars a year when you're taking care of diapers and food and all that kind of stuff. So you're really on your family planning journey a little bit early when you're starting your assisted reproductive treatment option, right? Absolutely. And so I that's mean, that's a good way to look at it. Yeah, and I, I think if we, you know, sort of at least try to lay out to help couples manage expectations when they start off, then they sort of get a better idea of of okay, what I need to do to try and achieve a goal. Also, you're knowing that there's been disappointments along the way in their journey already, and that you're trying to sort of buffer, you know, some of those disappointments and do the best that you can as a team, you know, and with that person or that couple uh, to try and do everything, you know, because they're often bringing questions to your consultation. And 
and people are doing a lot of research. They're listening to podcasts. They're listening to a lot of areas where they're learning about quotes fertility treatment options. And you know, is this suitable for me? And and would it help me out in in this setting? Right, which is very common that couples and their individuals will ask us. Right, so, definitely. And it's such an individualized plan that you will come up with with your medical team, and it's going to depend on a whole bunch of different factors. I'd love to talk just a bit about, you know, making the decision to do IUI, but prior to that, because that's a decision that's made between the patient or patients and their care team. How long should a patient be trying to conceive on their own prior to seeking the expertise uh, of a medical professional? Okay. So age is an important factor, right? Age uh, is always, you know, we often hear about the biological clock. So age is always uh, our biggest enemy when it comes to fertility potential and fertility treatments. I can break it down. If a couple is under 30 and they're trying to get pregnant on their own and they haven't conceived within six months, something is wrong. Something is not quite clicking. So it could be a tubal factor problem. It could be a lady who has endometriosis and her egg quality is not as healthy. Could be a male factor problem, you know, that we don't really know. So after six months of trying, I would encourage them to talk to their family physician about referring. I know that we have the definition of infertility as one year of unprotected intercourse and then trying. So by the time you've tried that one year, go see your doctor. It takes a few months to get into your family doctor. Then it takes a few months to see your referral. Now you've been trying for a year and a half and almost two years. Whereas if after six months, if you would have at least, you know, touched base and initiated that referral, we could have investigated and found some causes and either helped you get pregnant or at least understood maybe why you're having troubles getting pregnant and and sort of redirect treatment options, right? I honestly think that age is important. Like if you're younger and you're not getting pregnant within six months, absolutely, you should sort of touch base. If you're over 35 and you haven't gotten pregnant after four to five months of trying, you should be touching base for a referral because, again, now age, as we're getting older, causes a decreased reduction in the number of eggs. I might recruit each for, each month, you know, at the cohort of eggs a woman might recruit each month. And, uh, you know, so that's going to be a significant impact, too. Most People that we're seeing in infertility clinics often range somewhere between 30 and 39, you know, and 33 and 39 is sort of the average group. Most fertility clinics are are seeing people because they either haven't been ready to start their families by then or or they're coming in thinking about it now, right? Because other friends and family members are having families and they say, I think it's time for us to join. So, So that's not an uncommon thing. So I'm often encouraging people to look into it a lot earlier than the one year. You know, uh, and I think six months of trying at least should get that discussion going and maybe have the opportunity to touch base with a fertility specialist. Because like you were saying earlier, there could be regional disparity. It may be a long time to get in for a consultation because there's only one fertility clinic in the province. So, I mean, those things by initiating it, then you might actually get pregnant while you're waiting for your consult. And I'd much rather have somebody phone me and say, sorry, I'm not coming for that appointment today because we're pregnant, which would be great. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. It's such great advice because you do see that. And even, you know, we've heard from other patients that have said, you know, my family doctor told me I had to wait. I agree with you that, you know, if you're hitting that six month mark, by the time you actually get in to see your family doctor and then get your referral, 
you're probably pushing a year, if not a year and a half by the time you see a clinic. And it is much easier to take your name off a wait list than it is to wait that additional time before making that original phone call. Well, and then the other thing that happens is one, that monthly angst gets worse. You get a little bit more upset. The husband often gets a bit more upset, even though he keeps it quieter to himself that he's not helping his partner get pregnant in, in, a, in a heterosexual setting. And so then that sort of gets into a point where now, you know, trying to uh, uh, make love to try and get pregnant becomes more of a business. And then you get some degree of sexual frustration and sexual dysfunction. And the next thing you know, you know, cortical frequency drops off. So then it becomes a vicious circle you know, and vicious cycle, you know, it's for, you know, the longer you're having infertility, the more depressed you're getting, the more upset you're getting, the harder it is in that journey. And I think so if, if people actively start pursuing, why am I not getting pregnant a little bit earlier? One, we can find out an answer that we can maybe fix relatively simple. Or two, we might find out the reason why you're not getting pregnant and it may or may not be able to be overcome so that at least you can now talk to couples about adoptive parenthood. You can talk to couples about other options. Is it an egg donation issue that you might need to follow? Is it a sperm donation issue that you might need to follow? Or is it a surgical issue that you might need to follow? So you can identify those problems a lot sooner in their journey and hopefully get them to the point where they can start their families better. Just because you're going to see a fertility specialist doesn't mean you're jumping directly into IVF. Correct. You know, there are other interventions and IUI is one of those interventions that may be ideal for lots of different people. Well, and we even know that when you're investigating a, a couple, you know, you do a screening semen analysis, you check out a lady's hormone profile and egg reserve, you do a, 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 an x-ray or a dye test to check out her fallopian tubes to see if they're patent. And sometimes during your investigations, you know, an HSG might improve tubal function and next thing you know, the person gets pregnant. So some of the investigations can be both diagnostic and therapeutic at the same time. But they also give us an idea who's a good candidate to try, you know, simple fertility pills or or an IUI you know, related cycle, because it could identify other problems like fibroids or structural problems, tubal problems, right? That could be impeding that couple's ability or that person's ability to get pregnant, right? And you can identify that. So the sooner we can investigate a couple to say, you know, everything's okay, we've got, you know, you're okay, or we can identify the problem and correct it then they will feel much more comfortable that they're actively pursuing, you know, a corrective way of improving their fertility potential and starting their family as soon as possible. Because we all know that by the time somebody comes to see me for a fertility consult, they wanted to get pregnant two years ago. And adding up all that frustration and disappointment and tears when your period comes at the end of a month is very hard, uh, you know, on, on both partners. Uh, you know, the husband's that I talk to and, and, and couples that you talk to, sometimes they they're, they say, well, it's going to happen, or they sort of try to help and support their partners, but they don't fully feel that, you know, that, uh, that heartbreak that a woman goes through each month when she's actively trying to get pregnant and it's not working. It is very, very hard. And I think, you know, there's always lots of Kleenex in my office and there's always lots of tears shed, right? You know, between all of us, right? Sometimes, I, you know, I've certainly had some tears when I see a couple struggle, whether it's, you know, infertility or it's a miscarriage or other things that 
make that fertility journey even harder, you know, to go down. So, yeah, I agree. Thank you for addressing that. It's really validating for people to hear. Well, and you know, I know that we're sort of deviating from the IUI topic and we'll get back to that, but it it actually sunk home with me about a year and a half ago. I had a patient of mine who I'd seen over the years and she finally, she said to me, you know, she was, we had a really nice visit and both of us were a little teary, but she said to me, every time I drive by the clinic, it's like PTSD. I get anxious. I get, you know, tense because I've gone through all that journey. I went through the IUI, finally got pregnant with IVF, but it was a long journey. And for her to describe it as almost like a PTSD, you know, a light bulb went off and I said, that was a real aha moment to realize that, yes, I mean, each month, whether you have a period or each, you know, passing attempt at a treatment that doesn't work. It just adds that little bit more of a grief, you know, and and everybody's traumatic event or trauma is is often a little different, be it physical or be it emotional or whatever. But it really, you know, it really uh, resonated uh, as an aha moment when she ultimately said that to me, because I, I never actually thought of it that way before. I, I've always known that the journey has been difficult and things like that, but it was a very interesting way that she described her feelings. So. Wow. Yeah, that's very powerful. And to have that reaction is is something we do here. We know that the doctors that work with us are invested and they want us to achieve a pregnancy and take home that baby. So I can appreciate how that feels, you know, sitting on the other side of the desk. Oh, for sure. Yeah, no, it's, it's always, it's a great opportunity. I've had the fortune of being a family physician for a few years. Then I was an obstetrician, gynecologist and reproductive surgeon for my career. And the IVF, you know, delivering babies was always great. It was always fun. And, you know, people still come up to you in the grocery store remembering that you were the resident that delivered their baby. But helping couples actually that haven't been able to get pregnant easily, you know, and, and you can help them have a family is incredibly rewarding, right? I mean, oh, it's, yeah. it's rewarding as a physician. And, and, you know, like fertility clinics are really a full team, right? There's the embryologist, there's the nurses, there's the physicians, there's the administrative staff. And I think everybody that uh, uh, is certainly in our clinic at Heartland is very invested and they're very, you know, supportive and, and interested in the patient's journeys and doing as much as we can to sort of ease that. And we know that we can't, you know, make, get everybody pregnant sometimes at times. And sometimes there's a variety of different reasons, right? But it's certainly not that lack of effort or that lack of support and, and trying to to help as many people as possible, right? Definitely. So let's loop back then to IUI. Why don't we talk about what it actually looks like from sort of your assessment, making the decision to move forward with an IUI? What can a patient expect to experience from medication and procedures and those types of things? Okay. So from just say from the initial investigations, we have to confirm that a, a, a husband uh, and a male partner has a decent enough semen analysis. So there's enough motile sperm that can concentrate and swim up to fertilize an egg on their own. So that's a sim- fairly simple investigation. On the lady's side, most commonly, she needs to have a, a fairly normal uterus with not too, too many structural reasons like fibroids and patent fallopian tubes for sperm and egg to have a chance to get through that conduit. Okay. So that's a must in the investigation. And then artificial insemination or IUI is achieved by some people just want to do it naturally, where they just want to say, just follow my cycle. I don't want any medications. 
They might just do ovulation predictor tests uh, that sort of say when they're about to surge. And then we can have the husband come in the next day, concentrate a sperm sample, and then use a small catheter to transfer mm-hmm. it inside. Okay. And some women uh, prefer to just have an IUI done and, and not have any medication. When we add medications, there's oral medications like clomiphene citrate and letrozole are common ovulation-inducing drugs that we're using nowadays for oral meds. And then uh, um, a class of medications called gonadotropins, which are injected. And the oral medications will often stimulate fewer eggs to reduce that risk of high-order multiple pregnancy. Because when you're doing IUI, it's a random event where you're actually putting a concentrated amount of sperm into the uterus. And if you're making a lady ovulate two or three eggs, there's that chance that any one of those could fertilize. And so that instead of just getting pregnant, she could have a higher order multiple pregnancy. So part of the risk of IUI is is multiple pregnancy. It's less so when we use the oral medications because they don't stimulate as many mature follicles. Certainly more so if you're actually using gonadotropins to stimulate more eggs. And in Canada, we've sort of got some guidelines that say when you should cancel a cycle. If a lady is producing more than four dominant follicles over a certain size, they're often encouraging us to either cancel the cycle or talk about converting them to IVF because the risk of a higher order pregnancy, like a quadruplet or a quintuplet pregnancy, obviously is going to be met with a lot more complications obstetrically, right? Premature labor, kids that could have, you know, problems with prematurity and other, you know, peripartum problems with higher order multiple pregnancies. So at the end of the day, our goal is to create a healthy family, right? And I know that a lot of couples come in and say, yeah, twins would be great, you know, and and most commonly when they've had twins and they come back, they say, I only want a single embryo transfer, right? Absolutely. I do have twins. Uh, Yeah, I would agree with that (laughs) statement. (laughs) But but I think those are the things. So IUI, open tubes, healthy, uh, normal screening semen analysis on the male and a decent ovarian reserve. Okay, you don't have to have a large ovarian reserve. And we sometimes do IUI on a lady with a low ovarian reserve because we know we're more dealing with, we're more concerned about the quality of the egg she's ovulating more so than the quantity. So, and then then it's just a matter of differentiating between uh, the oral and the injectable. The injectable medications are much more expensive. So an IUI cycle with injectable medications called gonadotropins is going to be a cycle that the medication costs themselves could be over $1,500 a month, right? And that's not including the preparation of sperm and the IUI and things like that. So whereas oral medications can be anywhere from $50 to $75 per cycle of IUI. So the medication costs for an oral stimulation for IUI is a lot less. And obviously, if you just do a natural IUI with no medications, that's less. And it's just the concentration and the preparation of the sperm and the procedure itself, right? So it, it reduces the cost, but also it's it's associated with lower pregnancy rates, right? Yeah. So, so I mean, I think that IUI is a really good introductory uh, form of treating uh, a, a couple or an individual with uh, uh, infertility that has good healthy tubes and that... Um, but you also have to sort of be aware of what the potential risks are with the a multiple pregnancy risk, right? And that's what you definitely want to counsel the patient. And you want to give them an idea. Like if I'm telling you with oral IUI, you could have anywhere from a 
an eight to 14% pregnancy rate per cycle, people are going to say, is that all? But I mean, somebody's natural fecundability when they're in their 30s could be anywhere from 10 to 15% per cycle, even if they're getting pregnant the old fashioned way, right? Right. And I think that that's a good, you know, comparable that for someone who's conceiving spontaneously on their own, it is a low, like, it's not a hundred percent chance that you're getting pregnant every time when all the stars aligned, even when all the stars are aligned, it's not necessarily written uh, that you're going to get pregnant. So I think that's a good comparable to say that's more of a aligned with. Remember the one thing I was saying is sort of an accumulative pregnancy rate. Mm-hmm. If I say it's eight to 10 or eight to 12% per cycle. So if eight, if 10% of people get pregnant the first time, another 10 of that 90 get pregnant the second time, and another 10 of that uh, 81 get pregnant the third time, then I've probably got about 27 people pregnant out of that 100 that started off, right? And that's why when we talk about infertility, if you have a 10 to 15% chance of getting pregnant, about 60% of couples that are trying are pregnant within six months. And that there's a law of diminishing returns after that year up to about 80 to 85% of people have gotten pregnant in that one year. And then it just sort of, you know, it trudges along, you know, there's always a background pregnancy rate that people might get pregnant, but the majority of people are going to get pregnant within the first six months, they're going to try. And that's why I was saying that coming for a fertility assessment after six months of trying is a good idea because, you know, we're treating people that still have fertility potential, maybe. And they might need just something simple to help them get pregnant, right? Yeah, that's a good that's, that's reference the point to think about too, you know. So Yeah. And good it good for people to know because you know, I always wonder if people put it off, like lots of different medical things, even like going to the dentist. You know, we 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 can put things off because there's a fear of the unknown or we especially in society and what we're hearing on like in news stories of celebrities, for example, we more often than not hear about IVF and how expensive it is. And that is, you know, hearing that information and not having a full picture that that might not be the case for you and your particular family planning. You know, it's important to have those conversations to say this, let's do some investigation, some preliminary work to figure out what this could look like for you and what it might actually be versus being nervous and saying, I could never afford IVF. So I'm not even going to make the phone call. Right. Right. And I think that's, and then the other thing I often talk to people about when they say that comment that I can't afford IVF. Right. I mean, I use the idea that if, if you, if you do have a baby, that's going to, you're going to have to come up with about 10 to $15,000 in that per year, you know, to keep raising that child with clothes and all the things that you're going to need. And when you actually take a look at what we call our fixed and our discretionary spending, right? So, I mean, absolutely, uh, IVF is not an inexpensive fertility treatment, but it's actually a lot less expensive than some of the other medical therapies that we're using uh, currently right now, right? An interesting statistic, and and I'm not trying to pit one health area over another, but the overall uh, budget for certain chemotherapy for colorectal cancer for uh, extending our life one to five years or whatever. The, uh, so they often measure that on, on life years gained by a treatment, a successful treatment. 
So the budget for that, say, is five to ten million dollars in a year. So five to ten million dollars in a year spent in Manitoba on fertility. Uh, and you have about a 40 to 50% uh, chance of helping a couple get pregnant, their life years gained is about 75 to 78 years. So that successful treatment has has allowed a life, you know, because the average life expectancy in men is, I think, 74, and in women's a little higher, uh, almost in the low 80s now. Um, it, it sort of shows you how some of these treatments, albeit they're a little expensive up front, they're, you know, the cost over the long term and the success. So even when a couple takes a look at their fixed and their discretionary spending, then they have to pay for their house, their food, their gas, the things like that. But, you know, if they're smoking, they can cut back a little bit there. If they want to take some trips to Mexico or to Florida, they can sort of adjust their travel plans. And then I always tell couples they should put to get, put some money aside in a family account anyways, because if they get pregnant on their own, they're going to have some expenses for a family. And if they do that for about you know, 12 to 18 months, a lot of people can get to that point. And especially if in, like I said, especially with that fertility tax credit, where it's a pay forward, but you get almost 60 to 70% of it refunded back in your following tax year, it becomes a much more affordable and less overwhelming expense when you actually think of it that way, right? Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. And we have more and more conversations with employers and insurance companies that are adding fertility and family building benefits for their employees, which is great. So, I mean, we have a lot of work to do, but we're certainly making strides and we're seeing that, you know, every day there's a new company that's announced a new uh, program. So that access point is getting a little closer for, for some people. Yeah. 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 And so just getting back to the IUI, I mean, finishing up on the IUI, like I said, the, the three approaches, natural, medicated cycles with either oral meds and injectable meds and each of them have their risks and benefits pros and cons and cost discrepancies right but i think the overall message that i also want to let people know is iui is a good treatment up to a certain point right and the longer you keep trying iui the less likely it's going to be successful for you because you're not identifying what the problem is and that's where ivf albeit a bigger jump you know, and sort of, you know, people knowing that, at least if they know when they come in for an initial consultation with me, I say, I like to say to them, I said, over the next 12 to 18 months, I want to see you have the best opportunity to get pregnant. And we'll start off with a couple of simple things, but I don't want to drag the simple things on too long for you so that we can at least make a decision. And I think a lot of people appreciate that sort of a game plan, you know, so that they can be an active participant in, in their, their plan, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. That gives them some control back. And I think that's the big thing about fertility, you know, clinics and fertility protocols and stuff like that. They they're doing all these things. And, you know, I I just had a couple this week. They did everything, went through IVF. They had pre-genetic testing, PGT, have seven perfectly normal embryos. And on the first two embryo transfers, neither of them took. So after you've done all of those things and they've done everything that they're told and they still have perfectly healthy embryos, even at that point, I say that there's a 65% chance of implanting that embryo. It's about there. That still means 30 to 35% it might not take. But there's a perfect example of somebody following all the 
They've gone through the IUIs, they've gone through IVF finally and done really well, and they still haven't crossed oh, that obstacle that's holding them back. Yeah, that's really hard. Really it's, hard. It's a hard discussion to have those ones, you know, yeah. with couples too after they've 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 jumped into that. And it's I think it's really important to develop a good rapport with your patients and be honest and try to be upfront about what expectations are. And that IVF and these fertility treatments are really good to a certain point. But there's that last little leap of faith, you know, that ultimately happens when when you do a treatment and and whether it works for a a person or not. Absolutely. So, Dr. McTavish, just, you know, as we prepare to wrap up, what are your top three takeaways? And we'll talk about IUI for patients who are listening. So top three takeaways is um, don't be afraid to start your family earlier in life because a lot of uh, employers and uh, university programs and medicines are supporting people being on maternity leaves and things like that. So try not to put uh, uh, things off too long uh, because your fertility potential is always better when you're younger. The other takeaway, I think, is uh, if you haven't conceived after six months, regardless of how old you are, whether you're, especially when you're younger and under 30 and you haven't uh, conceived, something's probably wrong. If we're getting a little older, closer to 35 and over, our fertility potential starts to drop off as we're getting older. So again, that four to six months of trying and then try to be referred for sort of at least working on a game plan. And then realizing that artificial insemination as a a treatment option is a good option, but it's limited as it really tries to get you back to what your normal fecundability or your normal fertility rate might be for your age, which could still be in that 8 to 15%, so it's still not high. And then don't be afraid to realize that IVF, albeit a bit more expensive up front, might be able to be something that could actually create healthy embryos at your youngest age so that actually could help you expand your family as you go forward. So I think those are four sort of pearls that if we can sort of take away from that to help couples think along the lines of how they want to plan their fertility journey and and fertility treatment options to keep those in, in mind, right? Because I think that would help. Absolutely. Dr. McTavish, thank you so much for spending your time today and for sharing your expertise with our listeners. Uh, it was a pleasure to officially meet you face to face. We've, you know, been working in this space for a while and have never had a conversation like this before. So I appreciate that so, so much. Oh, listen, I, I've thoroughly enjoyed having a chance to talk to you, Caroline. And I think it's, you know, it's, it's you and the podcasts and the ways of getting out to uh, the general public that are having these questions in a non-threatening way. Sometimes when they come and talk to the physicians, they're a little bit more nervous and intimidated, but I think having conversations uh, like this with you that are a nice open forum, quite casual, I think they're great. I think they're informative and I certainly hope that uh, this has been helpful for, for you and some of your listeners. Absolutely. So thank, you, thank you for asking me to be involved. Thank you. Well, we'll have you back for sure. This has been another episode of Fertility in Focus, a podcast by Fertility Matters Canada. Fertility Matters Canada is a registered Canadian charity. And if you have the opportunity to make a donation to our cause, we will put that those funds right back into our programming to help Canadians who are struggling to build their family through fertility. And don't forget to like, subscribe, download, leave us a a comment or a rating, and you can find this podcast on all podcast channels. Thanks for being here.